Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So good morning, Charged Up Studio listeners. Welcome back once again to another episode where you get charged up for success. And I'm Dana Olivo, your host and CEO of Marketatomy LLC. In today's constantly changing business ecosystem, resource management and coordination is a driving force behind sustainability and communication. Our guest today has extensive knowledge in helping leaders thrive through adaptive transformation, which is exactly what we need today. Lisa Levy loves a good puzzle. Systems, processes, and evolving technology are her friends. With an increasing rate of change and disruption, many leaders believe they must survive in a constant state of chaos. Lisa experienced this exact phenomenon firsthand when working in a corporate role where there were too many chiefs to get jobs done. I know that feeling. She was determined to find a better way and has dedicated her life to help savvy business leaders who want to build agility into their operating model to continuously adapt and thrive by using her signature adaptive transformation framework. She now travels the world virtually and to live events, helping men and women, business leaders and entrepreneurs deliver results by focusing on the critical items and overcoming trivial distractions. She shares her background, which allows her to lead organizations at the strategic, operational and tactical levels, and thereby generating their commitment to succeed and enables them to have big picture results. Let's all please welcome to Charged Up Studio, Miss Lisa Levy with L-Cubed Consulting. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Dana. Thanks so much for inviting me to the conversation. No, I'm glad you're here. I'm excited to talk about this topic with my, with my listeners out there. So Charged Up Studio's audience is made up of small micro-business owners. And if there's one thing we are very familiar with, It's the unending chaos that comes with early stage growth development. I refer this syndrome to suffering from what I call OPA, overwhelm, paralysis, and avoidance. Absolutely understand where you're coming from. So before we get started with our questions, tell our audience a little bit about you and why you are passionate about adaptive transformation. My career started out in corporate America in information technology project management. I led teams of people in implementing systems that were intended to solve business problems, that were intended 
to make life easier, to make work easier. And time after time, it failed. And I was frustrated and a little curious. And I started to kind of take the puzzle apart to try and put it back together in a better way. And I started to learn that technology is not magic. Technology enables process. Processes are run by people. And so I put together an equation that really sounds like people plus process times technology equals scale and growth. And that's how we really started to get in these large environments, the results that we were looking for, because the technology in and of itself didn't solve the problems. It oftentimes made them worse. I spent 20 some odd years doing this and building teams of people who are really good at organizing work into projects, understanding how processes should work, understanding what people need to go through these change experiences. And I reached a point in 2009 where I was working for a growth stage company, an emerging company round series C, series D of their, their funding, getting ready. The rocket ship was ready to take off. And I looked at the executive leadership team and they were surrounded, each leader was surrounded by a team of consultants and they were focused in on their business functions and building walls, reinforcing silos. And I was there in the leadership team to work with teams cross-functionally to drive Mm -hmm. strategic results through operational execution of the, the vision, the goals, the objectives. And meeting day in and day out, not just resistance, but active resistance, because those consulting teams were all paid to not be cross-functional. Yeah. And I said, enough. I've had it. I want to do something differently. And that's where L-Cubed was born. And the idea of doing and using best practices that exist in global corporations in new and different ways. Right, right. And you're absolutely right. You know, I've worked for some very large corporations as well as small businesses as well. And, you know, one of the things that I have found is um, the involvement, as you said, the cross-pollinating, you know, um, the leadership are focused on one thing, and that is the dollars. They're focused on the bottom line. And what they're not paying attention to is, you know, are the experiences that their customers bring that they want to engage because ultimately that's, what's going to bring the dollars in. And if you can't engage those customers in a way that they're going to become loyal fans, There's no sense in focusing on that bottom line so much. Absolutely. And you you just brought into focus, you know, the key point. Right. The customer is the only thing that actually matters. Because no matter what we do, if the customer is deriving value from it, everything else follows. But when we focus on developing what we believe are the best products and the best services, and we create those in a vacuum, and we don't actually talk with and understand what the customer's pain is, what their dreams are, what it is that will drive them and move them forward, we're focusing on the wrong things. Right. 
and you're and you're right you know and it's nice when we're talking to an audience that are small micro business owners to implement this at the very early stages of yes. their business rather than trying to come in to an organization that is multi-divisional, multi-locations, um, uh, you know, geographically, et cetera, and trying to implement this that would take months, if not years, to be able to, to implement throughout the entire organization. We want to catch them right in the very beginning. So tell me that formula again that you had, that you spoke right. about. Right. So people plus processes times technology equals results. Okay. Okay. Or equals scale and growth, right? There's lots of different outcomes that we can right. assign to that, but you need, it's sequential. You need the people, you need the people, the processes, the multiplier is technology, right? That gives you that lift, right? But it all starts with people and processes and then, and technology, and that will give you growth. That will give you scale. That will give you new products. That will give you new services. Right. And, and my audience, right? My clients are larger medium, larger corporations, but they're medium-sized businesses. But what's interesting and why we're talking, I think today is what I do and how I do it. A micro business can take this philosophy and start at the beginning and build with it in mind so that it isn't a lesson that they learn when they are at 10 million in revenue or 50 million in revenue. We can do it right from the beginning. And what's unique is it doesn't require lots of people. We're talking about skills and capabilities that can and should be seated in every employee in in the company. Right. And I would imagine, you know, coming from a little bit of the background that you come from as far as systems and processes as a strategist, okay, one of the biggest things that I run into is the uh, adoption Mm-hmm. of these systems and processes, especially by those who are nervous and scared of the technology and, and things like that. And they just as soon continue working the way they are. Wow. As far as, you know, old school, if it ain't broke, you know, why fix it? That type deal. Um, so what do you run into when you go into these medium-sized companies as far as that's concerned, what are the what are the biggest hurdles that you have? When you I think without with even meaning to you, just absolutely hinted to one of my 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 favorite things, yeah. and I call it you know that's you know the way we've always done it syndrome. Yeah, and that idea that small businesses grow to medium businesses because people have been doing things and they did it once and it worked and they did it again. And they never really thought about why it worked or if it actually really did work, but they just keep doing it and don't know why. And so, you know, what that starts to look like over time, everybody is really busy, but nothing actually gets done. Or it's a very slow growth. Or it could be a very slow growth, but leaders start to say, well, every, you know, everybody is busy. They have all of these things to do. We've solved this problem and this problem came back six, six months later. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're repeating cycles. We're repeating things because nobody's stopping and looking at why yeah. and understanding why that work is done in the first place. With the adaptive transformation framework, 
We've taken best practices, things large corporations do and have huge teams dedicated to Mm. project management, process performance management, internal controls, and organizational change. Rather than looking at those as functions, right, we're taking from them the skills and the capabilities and building them across all functions at all levels so that teams can work together to manage projects. What does that mean? Plan work, do work, get results, move on to the next thing. They can understand the processes that happen. Before I can do work, something happens and I get input. I do something with it that is output that goes to somebody else. If it's taking too long, if it's not getting the right results, any person in that chain of events should be able to say, you know, red flag, this isn't working. And they should be able to understand how to change it so that it does, so that it's effective and efficient. Internal controls are those points in processes where there's risk to the organization. Um, One of the easiest ones to understand is sort of in the procurement cycle. I should not be able to requisition and spend a million dollars without somebody saying it's okay to spend the million dollars. Checks and balances. Right. Without somebody else saying that the million dollars that was spent was for the thing it was intended to be spent on. Right. It's segregation of duties. It's checks and balances. It's common sense. It is. (laughs) It's common sense. But it's also right about people and that that organizational change being that last component. And I always leave it to the end because I think it's the most impactful part especially in micro businesses growing into small businesses growing in, you know, as you go through those growth cycles, because people are going on that journey with you and they need to understand growth is controlled chaos. It is uncomfortable. It is uncertain. Things are going to work some of the times and other times they're going to explode and go off the rails. But if everybody understands their role in it, and what they get out of it, and that it's supposed to add value to the customer, you can weather that turbulence much more effectively. Yeah. And, and, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, and I'm glad you said that because um, as I see, when we talk about lessons learned and best practices and things like that, a lot of those best practices and lessons learned are not quite applicable to what we're going through right now. It's like turning it on its head, you know, Mm -hmm. and we have to reevaluate and look at, okay, how do we use what we know and adapt it? Adaptive, okay. Adapt it to what's happening in our ecosystem today. And every ecosystem is different. Mm -hmm. And so one of those things, right, that back to that common sense idea Uh is another concept, you know, right. Critical thinking. Yeah. Decentralized decision-making. If we are building a team and that team right now, we may be three people. If we don't trust that those three people are capable of making the right decision in a moment looking for the best outcome for the customer, for the company, mm-hmm. are they the right people to be leading anything? And that's, I don't mean to be flippant and I don't mean to be sarcastic, but it's one of those first tough questions. 
when that three becomes 30 becomes 300, it's really, it's exponentially impactful. That's true. That's true. So let's talk a little bit about your book, the title of your book. Okay. What do you want people to know about the future proofing cubed? So the first thing, right, this, there's no crystal ball. No, there's not even a reliable magic eight ball that will give us, you know, predict what's coming. No, there are things that we know for free. Change is constant and inevitable. Mm-hmm. And if we build our business operating system, how we run the business, that engine that makes work happen every day to be adaptive, we can address anything that happens, whether that is a visionary new idea from you know, a, a founder or a CEO that takes us you know, on a pivot, whether it's a pandemic that turns us up, you know, upside down and backwards. If we know that the people who are working with us and our teams are capable of thinking critically, planning work, understanding what's supposed to happen, any business can be future-proofed. But the problem is today that we aren't taught that. Nobody's taught that. Yeah. We're, We're not even introduced to that. In the very beginning, you know, no. it's like, yeah, these are, this is the school of hard knocks, right? right? These are in my consulting practice, we, and my team hates it when I say this. And so I feel the need to say it all the time. We sell gray hair and scar tissue. We have been there. We have done it. And the pains and the, the, the chaos, the uncertainty been there, done that. We probably should print some t-shirts, but right. We learn these things through experience and leveraging a consulting organization at the right time or a coaching organization is about learning those things and using other people's experiences and knowledge so that you don't have to do it by yourself. You can actually circumvent some of that chaos and pain. And that's exactly it. And that's, like you said, coaching, mentoring, consulting, Mm -hmm. all of those are our friends when it comes to our leadership roles and our our ownership roles, because we can't always go to employees or spouses or something like that and vent, because that's just going to scare them off. So we need to be able to talk and, and vent with people who have been there, done that. Like you said, lessons learned. Absolutely. And who can validate that you're not crazy and that it is okay to be uncertain and it is okay to be downright scared in the middle of the night. You know, I I talk about a lot, you know, I wake up at 2 a.m. sometimes with brilliant ideas and sometimes with the, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do about, you know, the next thing. Right. I'm pretty comfortable in assuming I'm not the only person who does that. (laughs) I'm sure. I'm sure. So what, is it true that silos are harmful to businesses and why? Absolutely. Right. I I talked a little bit about it. I I, I set it up because when we work in silos inside of a specific function and only look at what we do and how we do it internally, that inward look we have lost sight of the goals and visions of the company. We have lost sight 
of what our customers want and need from us, right? So we're taking what we do and we're pushing it out. And what we need to always do is think from the outside in and from the perspective of that customer and what they want, what they need, how they define the value that they get from us. So every time that I see well-designed, reinforced silos, there's always an opportunity to do something different. Um, An example with a client that I was working with in the course of the pandemic, they wanted to redesign their customer journey. And when I'm talking about this, this is not the marketing exercise of the customer journey. This is operationally making it happen faster for their customer. And it it should always cross not only the marketing side, but the operational side and everything, because that is the true customer journey. It is, (laughs) but right. It always sort of starts in marketing and sometimes it it, it It ends there. Contract. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're, we were looking at this, this journey and the experience, and I asked the team, I said, all right, show me what is, what is the customer journey? And the marketing team gave me a beautiful one-sheet diagram that was glorious. It was branded. It was color-coded. It was four clear steps. It represented 16 weeks worth of time, and this is what the customer should expect. Yeah. And I said, wow, that's beautiful. How does it actually work? And the marketing team turned and started looking around the room at the six leaders who actually make all of this work happen. They said, well, we'll come back next time with our process documentation and let's walk through it. Next time we met, everybody brought in their their Visio flowcharts. We had swim lanes, we had all sorts of things. And one by one, we went around the table And as I was watching the leaders listen to each other, I noticed something. They were hearing this information for the first time. Wow. When one group ended, they looked and then they said, and then the next team does something. It wasn't documented that way, right? But that assumption is then something else happened. We did this. One one duty and yep. the next duty took over, that ended, another person took over. That's not a customer experience. It's absolutely not. But right, this yeah. is the business process. Yeah. In it, there were very few acknowledgments of communication to the customer or interaction with the customer. They didn't really understand when their stuff ended, what the next team did to drive things forward. So I, I'm drawing the story out, but let me pull it back together. After we started really understanding it, and after we talked with their customers in a focus group sort of situation, we threw out everything that they did. Because in this 16, and in practice, almost 20 weeks worth of work, there were processes, there were checklists, there were checklists for the checklists, there were things that just disappeared into the ether and never to be seen or heard from again that were recreated by another person at another point in time. And my head exploded trying to understand all of it. I said, leaders, thank you very much. I want, I want doers from your groups in this room with me and I want the voice of the customer. I want whatever data and information we have. And we started to take it apart and build the journey, not the business process, the journey. 
when we were done, the four or the 16 to 20 weeks worth of insane process was gone. It was a four to five week experience where the customers got what they wanted, when they wanted, how they wanted, and felt like they were integrally involved in everything that happened. And it was all about them. They were the center of the universe. Yeah. We went from 20 weeks to five. Wow. All of those layers of process and checklist upon checklist upon checklist gone, used some technology, used some things. And this was all pre-pandemic. And there was resistance to the idea of virtual meetings. Oh, well, guess what? The world changed and forced this new experience to happen because they had no other choice. Yeah. Yeah. And what would have been a transition in this company, and it was a large company, would have taken a quarter or two to actually adopt. COVID forced it to happen in two or three weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And in the peak of one of the worst times we've ever experienced, this client of mine increased their customer satisfaction exponentially. Wow. Yep. Yep. No, that's, that's exactly it. You know, it's like um, when, when I explore the customer experience, you know, and I tell my clients, you know, you've got to put yourself in their shoes. You can't make assumptions on what they want. You've got to understand at every single touch point, put yourself in their shoes. What are they expecting to see? If they go to social media, you know, or to a chat room or what are they expecting? You know, and one of the things, and for me, as I started kind of doing customer journey was a little bit new and different, but really solved for me the, how do you get to the customer at the center of your universe? Right. One thing we cannot do is make them caricatures, right? We talk about avatars and personas and those things, but they have to be very, very data-based. They have to really represent whatever it is, you know, that your target demographic is and each individual nuance and complexity in a different persona so that you're doing the right things at the right time for the right customer. And there is a risk to turning them into you know, a cartoon, which is bad, yeah. right? We need to really understand. And so actually doing the focus groups, the conversations with real people is important because every time you make an assumption in my flippant way, I will wager a dollar that says that assumption is going to prove false because you're doing it from your perspective inside. Right. You're not doing it from the outside perspective. Well, when, when I mentioned earlier about OPA, mm-hmm. okay, when I mentioned that uh, when I'm networking or whatever, or in front of my clients or whatever, they immediately can associate with what I'm talking about, you know, and is that what you're talking about is, is reaching them where they're at, not necessarily demographically, but where they are. Literally. Literally literally, emotionally, everything, mm-hmm. and creating that respect and that, and that relationship that is needed to create this customer experience. Yes. Okay. 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 So sales seems to be a huge buzzword. We use it all the time. Um, 
in every industry. What companies, what are companies missing when they are scaling and failing? So scale is part of two pieces and we, we don't always give credit to them. And I don't know that we all actually know what they both mean. So we have growth and we have scale and I will own early in my career. I used them interchangeably, which is a huge mistake, Mm -hmm. right? Growth is that first piece. We want to increase profits by X percent. We want to reduce overhead by X percent. It's about those numbers and really understanding and driving numbers, that's a great thing. And, and it's part of the equation. Scale is controlling that. It is systematically planning how and when we're going to grow and what it means. And when we try to grow and we try to scale without a plan and without a purpose and doing things without purpose or on purpose, right? We're, we're missing it. Yeah. So scaling and failing can be overcome by innovation and ideation right? Always, always, regardless of if it's two people in a company or, you know, 2000, there needs to be an ongoing way of generating new ideas. Where are we going to be in six months, in two years, in five years? Having those conversations because those ideas, testing them, experimenting, finding what works, finding what doesn't work, leaving that and moving on is how we start to create growth cycles, And as we're going through a growth cycle, we need that engine still bringing in the new things because it's going to start to pay for the next thing. And when we go from a growth cycle Mm -hmm. to a growth cycle, guess what? We just scaled. When we go from that growth cycle to the next one, we've scaled. And so it's understanding that it's a process that we can plan and it's work. Right. It is. It's hard work. I'm getting ready to um, hold right after the first of the year an annual strategic planning workshop, actually four of them, okay? And we do approach it. I approach it from revenue to begin with, and that's where you're talking about growth, okay? Growth in profit margins, growth in revenue, you know, how we're going to do that. But then we move on to the other factors. There's six of them that I go through. Okay. We start by identifying our overall goals, but then we start identifying, okay, what product and operational growth are we going to do that are going to meet those revenue numbers? How are we going to meet those revenue numbers by either bundling or packaging or cross-selling or whatever, you know, the, the, the tactical elements that are going to get to those numbers. You know, and and so we move from a macro level, which is a big view, okay? Then we move to a meso level, which is your objectives, your milestones, things like that. Mm-hmm. But then the micro level is where we get into the tactical. And we don't go farther than maybe three months at a time because we've got to be flexible. Yes. But where you're saying is every three months, we see the growth we've done and we've scaled. Yes. In the next three months, the growth we've done, we've scaled. Is that what you're talking about here? That is absolutely what I'm talking about. On top of that, right, or overarching that is then, right, scale becomes in that equation of are we growing our headcount? Are we using our technology to do more with what we have? Right. Are we using the technology systems that we have to their fullest capability before we consider replacing them? Yeah. 
Right. So all of those layer into that experience, but yes, quarter by quarter, looking at what we've accomplished and where we're going next is that growth portion. The scale then also takes into consideration how we're doing it with our people, our processes, and our technology. That's exactly it. When I talk about operational growth, I'm taking into consideration, are you going to need additional mm-hmm. staffing? Are you going to need technology or equipment brought in, you know, in order to meet the demand, you know, all of that. And it's, it's, it's a long process for them to understand, but by putting it down on paper, they can see that growth process. Mm-hmm. And then they, they're not looking at a huge, huge goal and getting overwhelmed in that, yes. over, that, in that, that OPA syndrome. You know, they're not as overwhelmed because they can break it down into smaller components. You know, so, yeah. One of the things that I've heard years ago, and it's a fascinating story, in Japanese business culture, they plan for legacy. From the very beginning, what is the 100-year plan for this company? In American terms, right? Look at the look on your face right now. 100 years. 100 years. I talk about it. You, know, I think, probably talk about this, right? The idea of a 10-year plan or a five-year plan, we don't strategically plan at that that duration of time anymore because so much changes, six months, nine months, right? Pandemics. I'm all, I've always been intrigued by that hundred year plan because it is one about legacy. I was going to say it's a legacy plan. It's a legacy plan. It's not about dollars and cents. It's not about revenue, right? It's not about all of these numbers and metrics that we talk so much about. It is a grand vision of legacy right. that actually, right. Interesting to watch how, it can stand the test of time in a way that we agile thinkers, right? Want to constantly be iterating, iterating, iterating. That takes us back to the mindset of taking the time to plan well and with purpose has value. It's a dichotomy that I, I, I struggle with sometimes, but there's an elegance in it that I also like because that vision, the time they put in to say, what does this legacy really look like? Well, you know, Toyota. Yeah. It's the impact you're going to make on mm-hmm. the, your community, the world, whatever, you know. Um, and, and to me, that's what that means. That's the legacy that you're going to leave behind, you know, with market anatomy, my ultimate legacy is to change the ecosystem of the micro business owner so that they're getting this education up front rather than starting a business with no knowledge. I want to be able to educate them so they can better succeed in business, you know, so that's changing an environment. You know, it's more than just the dollars or whatever it's changing, you know, our GDP, changing our labor force, you know, it's those after effects is what it is. So you bring the human side of yourself to your clients and share with them what keeps you up at night as you encourage them to do the same. What's the benefit of this? The benefit of this (laughs) is humanness. Yeah. It's vulnerability, a word that prior to the pandemic, I would never have uttered, right? We didn't talk about being or feeling vulnerable until the whole world was collectively feeling vulnerable, but it also takes away 
that sense of somebody's going to you know judge me. If I say this out loud, they're going to think I'm an idiot. They're going to think I'm inc- incompetent, incapable, whatever. As, as I bring and have conversations, right? It, it's just, it's real, it's authentic, it's transparent. And not that I love those buzzwords, right? But right earlier today, I already shared at two in the morning, all sorts of crazy things go through my mind. And some of them are reasonable. Some of them are irrational. But if I don't talk about them, I don't know which are the reasonable ones and which are the irrational ones. And they're just going to fester inside. You know, and yes. this is what a lot of CEOs, business owners go through is that, that um, doubt yes. in their heads. You know, um, uh, I've got uh, imposter syndrome, all of these things, right? Oh, that we oh, can exactly. demystify in the light of day by just saying, I woke up in a panic about this product launch that we have scheduled next week. Right. Let's review everything that we have staged and that's ready to go so that we all are comfortable around the table. Cause if I'm feeling it, I'm sure there are other people who are feeling similar things. Let's walk the plan and feel right. better about it because we know then that we do not just feel better. We know we have the plan to do what's, what's necessary. Exactly. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm like I said earlier, before the podcast started, I'm getting ready to move into a three month go to market strategy on yes. my academy and hiring these people. And it's not cheap, you know, and I'm basing it on historical numbers that they have given me. Okay. But basing, putting my numbers into, you know, plugging my numbers into it. And if all works out, that's great. But you still in the back of your mind, you're sitting, okay thinking, oh, what if this fails? I put out this money and I'm not making it back, you know, and all this other stuff. You have to take a risk sometimes. You do. So let's talk about fear of failure. Yeah. In American business culture, we we do not want to fail. It is right. part of, it, it is cultural. Failure is bad. Yeah. I work really hard with my clients to think of everything that we do as an experiment. It starts with that ideation and innovation engine, right? But we do little things, we do little experiments. And if we get the result that we're looking for, our next experiment's a little bit bigger. And if we get the results, it's a little bit bigger. And if we get results we weren't expecting, we may throw that out entirely. Notice in that I never said the word fail, Mm -hmm. right? We may put unintended or undesired results aside, but we're learning, So every step, everything we take, every time we take a risk, right? It's an experiment to get an outcome. We prefer Mm -hmm. the desired outcomes. We learn from the ones that aren't and we move forward. And when we think about it as an experiment and knowing that we're going to have, you know, one or two things are going to happen, right? We're not afraid of failing because we're not failing. We're learning. And if we could all just let go of failure and embrace learning making then the next informed decision. Is it a calculated risk? Is it not right? How do we, how do we move through all of that? It's a lot less scary. Right. Right. No, definitely. You know, I, I, this is that, that, that voice in the back of my head, you know, that just constantly there, you know, as I was explaining to um, Steve, Steve is the one who's working on the strategy for the Academy. And then Chris and, Rich are working with me on a product uh, launch, 
mm-hmm. in January. And so my comment to Steve is, okay, that's your job. The strategy is your job. Yes. Okay. My job is to find the money so I can pay you for the strategy. And that's what I'm doing with Rich and Steve. I mean, Rich and Chris. So, you know, it's, that's the mindset that I have found that you have to take, you know, is, uh, you know, you have to do things and, and rather than crying, oh, I don't have the money. I don't have the money to do this, you know, and things like that. Mm-hmm. You do have to take a risk. Okay. But you have to take a calculated risk. Like you said, yep. take a calculated risk. And if it looks like it's not going to work, get out of it real quick, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> so you talk about consultancies have changed. Can you compare how traditional consultancies were run with how you are running L cubed? Absolutely. So the traditional consultancies are designed to support multi-billion dollar organizations. That is why they exist. And in my my opinion, right, it is first and foremost about the growth and scale for the consulting company and second focus on what they're actually doing and giving to their clients. And, And it's a business model, right? They are running and trying to make profit just like everybody else. But their approach and how they come in with teams and the number of consultants from recent college grads who do the day-to-day kind of work, who are learning on the job, supported by somebody with some experience, supported by somebody who's a subject matter expert or you know a thought leader in an area, right? It's a very expensive model. Right. And it is also one that is designed to land and expand. So once they're doing one thing for you, they're looking for opportunities two, three, four, and five, and they want to be there in partnership with you for a very long duration of time. If you are talking about a global multi-billion dollar organization, that model can make sense and it can be very much uh, mutually beneficial. For a medium-sized company, for a micro-sized company, it doesn't work. It's cost prohibitive. And with L-cubed, Again, gray hair and scar tissue, you are definitely getting experience from everybody on my team because I personally believe that our consulting years are not our learning years. Our 20s, our 30s, right? When we are learning business, that's not when we have the the greatest value as consultants. It's when we actually have some knowledge and some wisdom and some scars um, from lessons we've learned along the way that we can share to help our clients not have to have the same kinds of painful experiences. So our, our engagements are much more um, strategically focused on being able to deliver results on day one and two with a very small team of specific knowledge for the specific need. Um, Let's also be serious, right? L cubed is a consulting firm. We would love to re-engage with our clients over time but our goal isn't to land and expand. It's to help solve a problem, help the client build skills and capabilities and self-reliance in an area. And hopefully because we've added value, be invited back to help them do that experience again for a different problem. Yes, no, exactly, exactly. You know, when I go in with my clients, um, even though I am considered a consultant, it's, it's 
the position that I hold in there is not a consultancy position, you know, because I've been there, done that. And where I'm coming is from a position of experience. I've made the same mistakes and I'm just trying to help you and keep you from making those same mistakes at the same time, trying to help you from not having to go back to college and spend thousands of dollars on courses that you can get through the academy. Mm-hmm. You know, those kind of things. So um, I agree, you know, with what you're saying as far as the changes in consultancies. Uh, I used to compare myself to other strategists all the time. <laughs> and it wasn't until I sat on a, um, a panel with one of my mentors, okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, after the panel was done, he looked at me and says, Dana, we need to talk. And I'm thinking, oh, crap, what did I do <laughs> wrong, you know? And we went, we sat down for coffee, and he looked at me and says, you know your poop. And I said, huh? And he says, you know what you're talking about. And I looked at him and I said, Harry, that means a lot coming from you because I look up to you. He says, no. He says, you know as much, if not more, than anybody else on that panel. The difference is you deliver it in a different way. Mm-hmm. And that's where you, you talk about the consultancy, you know, the difference in consultancies nowadays. Yes. Know, like that. So we're coming up on the end of our hour here. And let's just, I got one more question for you. Um, what is the one part of process building that no one considers? Perfection is not achievable. Uh, amen. <laughs> right? It's a goal and it's a good goal, but the key is all about continuously improving what you do. And so as we design processes, it is better to start and take a step forward than waste time planning for perfection. Take that, it's that experimentation, take that step forward, learn, take the next step forward and be willing to know that not everything is going to work out the way that you want it to. And then you'll make the decision on how to course correct and to keep moving forward. Very interesting. Nice note to to end on here. That's, That's excellent. So any last tips for our listeners? So one of the things, and especially in the micro business space, as leaders, it's important that we be disruptive, that we challenge the status quo, and that everything we do is about making a positive impact. What I've described in adaptive transformation, right, are tools and ways of doing that. But as leaders, being willing to think differently, to not accept the way we've always done it as gospel, shake things up, as long as the goal is to make and add value to your customers, you're on the right path. Very good. So how can our listeners get a hold of you or your book? Future Proofing Cubed is available on Amazon. And you can find me at lcubedconsulting.com. If that's too many words to think about, it's lisalevy.com. You'll find me in either location. Okay. And also on LinkedIn. Yes. Lisa L. Levy on LinkedIn. All right. Well, great. So that concludes our podcast for today. Please leave a review on any of the streaming platforms you happen to be listening to us on or go to Charged Up Studio Facebook page and leave a review there. Charged Up Studio is a product 
of Marketatomy Academy, the e-learning system designed specifically with the micro business owner in mind. For more information and to register for any of our courses, go to marketatomy.academy. I look forward to talking more with you next week when we will be spending our time with another exciting guest eager to help small business owners like yourselves. Talk to you then. Go out and have a charged up week. And thank you, Lisa. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.